You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Wednesday, May 18th, 2022. This is episode number 282. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis's Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about Copycat Consumables, a medical cannabis conference in Long Beach, corruption in Anaheim, John Fetterman's landslide victory, magic mushrooms in West Hollywood, legalization linked to decreased use of alcohol, nicotine, and opioids, Oakland's new push to help victims of the war on drugs, and many other frosty nuggets, so stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What you got today, Rico? Yeah, my story's coming uh, out of the Long Beach Business Journal. Medical Cannabis Conference blazes into Long Beach for the first time by Christian Mai Suzuki. So I wanted to cover this uh, one for a couple of reasons. Number one, I love science and data and the medical side of the plant, and I believe it should be highlighted a lot more uh, on our show and as well as for conferences and um, and different just overall events in the industry. So uh, this one's coming to Long Beach, and I'm going to try to stop by, and um, I'm surprised we haven't uh, touched on it more on the show, being that it's going to be out here in the long uh, in the Los Angeles area. But um, the Cannabis Science Conference, a forum for researchers and business professionals to convene and discuss the latest findings related to the, to the drug and its medical applications, will be making its way to the Long Beach Convention Center this week, May 18th through the 20th. It was founded on uh, 2016 by Josh Krosny uh, in the CSC bills itself as the world's largest and fastest growing cannabis science event with a specialized focus on analytics, medical usage, cultivation, hemp, CBD, and psychedelic science. 
um, a robust lineup of industry experts, device manufacturers, testing labs, cultivators, research scientists, medical professionals, policymakers, and interested novices will be at the semi-annual event aimed at improving cannabis science. <clears throat> I got the chance to interview Josh Krasny, um, the founder, uh, for a pride-focused webinar series I was hosting uh, back in 2020 when we were deep in the pandemic. And um, he gave me the rundown on why he believed that there was a need for more science-based conventions to counter the B2B show glut that we've seen, uh, we, had, we had seen up to this point, and uh, we continue to see past um, as, as things start to open up again. Um, this is what he said in the article. In a federally illegal industry, the, science, uh, the scientists and researchers are actually what's going to push us over the line. And I agree uh, wholeheartedly, even though uh, now that we are closer to legalization on a federal uh well, on a federal level, you're going to see a lot more of the doctors, the lawyers, and the scientists come out, um, be they real or not. And I think these conventions are going to be more important than ever before. So um, actor and media personality Montel Williams will be reprising his Let's Be Blunt keynote panel, which first appeared back in 2017. He's been a longtime advocate for the plant and has promoted widespread legalization over the years after benefiting personally to treat his MS. Um, using high-profile names in the past have helped Josh Krasny uh, bridge the gap between science and cannabis, and, and it looks like the formula he'll be continuing going forward. Besides Montel, it's been NFL offensive lineman Eben Britton, um, Grammy, Grammy Award-winning artist Olivia Newton-John. They've, also, uh, they've both keynoted in the past. Uh, this year, they'll be diving deeper into a, uh, case studies where children have been benefiting from medical cannabis, which I think can never we can never get enough of these days with all the uh, reefer madness, save the children BS that we've been seeing in the headlines. Uh, veteran usage studies and PTSD will also be featured as well. But the biggest shift from the uh, past shows will be their focus on psychedelics and how they're going to be used uh, for medical purposes going forward, too. So uh, for the article, uh, Krasny said, cannabis and psychedelics were used for healing purposes in ancient medicine for much longer than they have been banned in the modern world. And we're just now trying to undo the many decades of uh, prohibition and misinformation. So that'll be interesting also. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. I hit up Josh to see if we can get a soundbite from this morning. Um, but <clears throat> I don't know if anybody else in the room is going to be at the Cannabis Science uh, Conference or if you've been to the ones in the past. I have not. But uh, hopefully I'll be um, checking it out this week. This is Rico Lamit, Dopest Dad on the Street. For cannabis, the state of cannabis news hour. Uh, I'd like to hear what the rest of the team has to say about this one. I there should be a panel on bro science at this science conference. We should have a bro science <laughs> conference. Oh my god! I, I think this conference. I've heard. I went to CanMed. I know Eric Hislerada did also, and probably a bunch of people in our audience. And that's an amazing science conference. I've heard this is the like the second one that's like the best science conference for cannabis. So I encourage anyone who's into this kind of stuff to definitely attend. I'm sure you'll learn a lot. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I've heard a lot about CanMed. And um, I think this is the first time that Josh is bringing over the CSC to the West Coast. He was always on the East Coast. And um, I just wasn't able to go in the past. Uh, good morning, everyone. I've, I've been to Josh's conference before the pandemic, and it was excellent. I tend to go to conferences that are mainly medical cannabis in focus, but this one did have a nice mixture of industry and medical education, cannabis medical education, and I learned a lot. I, I did really appreciate it. And regarding CanMed, um, I understand that two-thirds of the audience participants were new to the conference, which really says a lot about the growth of people interested in learning about the plant. So that was really encouraging to hear. That's amazing. Two thirds. That's a lot. Um, Rico, I think one of the reasons, I mean, I, I didn't see this in, in the headlines 
uh, for a long time, maybe when he first announced it. But yeah, me, me either. That's yeah. I, well, well, one one thing in regards to that two thirds number, I think it's important to note too that all of those conferences were all held on the East Coast, where you have a lot of um, more fresher newbies, uh, kind of in the cannabis space. So. I'm not sure if that if we can like if that was a two thirds in California or even in Nevada during like an MJ Biz conference, then that would be something to 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 really really look at. Okay, Josh has done this conference before on the West Coast. He used to do it in Portland, Oregon, uh, prior to COVID. He would do one in Baltimore and he would do one in Oregon. He's been doing this for a little while out. Yeah, there. that's the one that I attended. One in Oregon. It, there's actually a lot of opportunity there, Jason, I think, because in being there, yeah, there were so many new people. And I was surprised instead of some medical professionals, there are people who literally were just wanting to know how to grow and make their own tinctures. And personally, I'd have a harder time spending money and going to a conference like that just to do that. But these people were so enthused and they really wanted to know about alternative cannabinoids or different things. So I think that this is probably just a sign of what's going to come on the East Coast and it'd be great to get ahead of it. But I think this is approximate like the lag time we're seeing where from the time the legislation changes to the time the consumers are changing their trends. I'm curious to know if they're going to have any COVID protocols. The last two events I went to, there wasn't even any mention. There was no hand sanitizer, zero masks. COVID's over, Susan. COVID's oh, over. really? Yeah, you keep, okay. you keep believing that. You keep believing okay. that. What I would Make say news. Yeah, is, sure. that news is a CWCBE that we're doing in a few weeks in New York's uh, Javits Center. We have no uh, COVID protocols. It's not being required. Like I said, COVID's over. I'm not saying. I'm on site at MJ. I'm packed in New York, and I don't believe there are any COVID protocols. Did you guys hear that? Brandon, say that again. I'm on site for uh, MJ Unpacked here in New York, and it's inside at a hotel. And to the best of my knowledge, there's no mask mandate or COVID protocols. Uh, I'll update you tomorrow if that's different. Yeah, be curious to know. I brought Bud Unity up from the audience. Bud, did you want to weigh in on Rico's headline? Well, no, I just wanted to come up and listen. Was that fast enough, Jason? That was perfect, Susan. (laughs) Hey, I just wanted to say that CWCBE, what Gretchen was talking about, I've been to that on the West Coast. It's great, too, if anyone in the audience is, like, getting into cannabis and wants a lot of connections. It's awesome. And if you want want a discount, uh, hit me up in the back channel, and I'll give you a promo code. Oh, yeah, promo codes. Yeah, you know what promo codes are all about. To let us in on the secret, Rico. If you know, you know, Susan. They're for your OnlyFans All account, right. Susan. Okay. Let's keep smoking the news. Let's. The industry's longest continuously operating retailer, known in certain California circles as Kaiser Brose, can be found in his natural habitat rocking a mink coat and doing what he believes is his calling in life, identifying and eradicating the earth of boof. Up next... It's Mel Gibson <laughs> to, to, my, to my Danny Glover. <laughs> Beck, what you got for us today, my man? <laughs> oh, that's fucking great, Rico. Hope everyone is having a fabulous hump day. Don't worry. The week is almost over if you get through today. But nonetheless, my story is full of corruption and spice. Where the Anaheim corruption case expands as feds charge the leader of cabal that runs the city. That's right. 
The former head of the Anaheim Chamber of Commerce has been charged with lying to a mortgage lender in a growing Orange County political corruption scandal. Federal authorities announced on Tuesday in a criminal complaint, the FBI accused the chamber former president and chief executive Todd Ammon of plotting with an unnamed political consultant to funnel chamber money into immense personal bank accounts by laundering it through the consultant's public relations firm. The money was used to influence a bank's decision to lend Ammon more than $1.1 million to buy a sprawling $1.5 million home in Big Bear, the complaint says. The PR firm gave Ammon $205,000, making it appear that he had enough cash on hand to secure the loan, according to the FBI. The FBI also accused Ammon of making a $200,000 payment directly to the seller of the home in order to reduce his property taxes and cut the cost of the commission for the seller's real estate agent. Ahmet was was due in federal court in Santa Ana on Tuesday for his initial bail hearing. His attorney, Salvatore Chilula, did not return a call for comment. The charge against Ahmet for making false statements to a financial institution appeared to be just one part of a larger federal corruption investigation targeting Ahmet and others. In an affidavit filed on Monday with a criminal complaint, FBI agent Brian C. Adkins outlined the, outlined the suspected corruption with well beyond the Big Bear home loan, including attempts by unnamed people to bribe elected officials in Orange County. The case against Emmett was announced a day after the public disclosure of another Atkins affidavit showing the FBI is investigating Anaheim Mayor Harry Sidhu for suspected bribery, fraud, obstruction of justice, and witness tampering. Sudoku Atkins wrote in the court wrote in the court filing is believed to have shared confidential information with representatives of the Angels baseball team on the city's on the city's sale of the Anaheim Angels Stadium in return for a large donation to his reelection campaign. Oh ho ho Sudoku's attorney Paul Mayer could not be reached for comment either. Mike Leister, a spokesman for the city government, said he could not comment on the mayor on the mayor's behalf. The affidavit released by the FBI Tuesday described uh, Amit and the unnamed political consultants as leaders of a small group of Anaheim public officials, consultants, and business leaders. The group met regularly at hotel suites in in parentheses retreats to exert influence over Anaheim's government, Adkins wrote. Amit and the political consultant described the group as a family, in quotation marks, or a cabal, in quotation marks, he said. Atkins identified the consultant as a principal partner of a nationally known political and public affairs company with an office in the same building as the Anaheim Chamber of Commerce. The chief executive and senior partner at FSB Public Affairs, which has an office in the same Anaheim building as the chamber, is a veteran Republican political consultant, Jeff Flint. Atkins also wrote that the consultant filed lobbying disclosure reports identifying Angel's affiliate SRB Management LLC as a client. Starting in September of 2020, city records show that Flint filed such reports and Flint declined to comment on these cases. And Tuesday, when reached out on his cell phone, he in quotes, he says, I can't talk right now. <clears throat> he said, for many years, Ammon and the Chamber of Commerce have been a key part of the city's political machine in Anaheim and Orange County's most populous city and the home of Disneyland. Ahmet helped spearhead campaigns to drum up public support for tax breaks granted to major businesses and was heavily involved in the effort to sell Angel Stadium and surrounding land to the owner of the professional baseball team. 
With court authorization, the FBI tapped the cell phones of Amit and the political consultants, Atkins wrote, and the FBI sus- suspects Amit and the consultant engaged in a scheme to embezzle money from the Chamber of Commerce and to defraud an unnamed cannabis consultant and an unnamed cannabis business owner, according to Atkins' most recent affidavit. The cannabis consultant hatched a separate plot for two marijuana business owners to bribe two unidentified Irvine City Council members in return for passing pot laws on their behalf, Atkins alleged. The business owners ended up working with the FBI to record conversations with the cannabis consultant who was arrested in October of 2019 and became a confidential federal witness. Hashtag stop snitching. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Anaheim has a whole bunch of dispensaries for it to be illegal out there. Just saying. Yeah, but there's no legal dispensaries in Anaheim. Was their name uh, Ammon? Like, like ah, like Ammons? Like you always talk about, Jason, your favorite kind yeah, of Yeah, it was, it, was <laughs> it was close to Almonds. It was close to them. Do we know who the consultant was? Well, they're not releasing his name due to the fact that he's a federal snitch. Jesus. I would not be surprised, I hate to say it, if we'll see more of this coming out eventually in the future. This story does not surprise me at all, especially with all the shit that I know about going on in Anaheim. So I hope everyone can do better and this shit's got to stop. It'll be interesting to see what kind of sentence they get if they are convicted. Well, the worst part is the person that probably did the most dirt is probably the one that's snitching, and he's going to just fucking get off or get fucking very minimal time due to his cooperation. Yeah. Yeah. So fucked up how it works. The injustice system. Um, But we're at time. Let's keep smoking the news. Get off the phone, Jason. You're up. Jason. (laughs) Jesus. Should I do my own introduction? Do you want to, Gretchen? Somebody, right. sorry about that. Somebody sorry, fly sorry. the plane, please. Somebody sorry, fly the plane. Redhead, my, coming my to you from DC. Beck sucks. Here's my story. Um, coming from the New York Times, uh, my story actually is an opinion piece, um, and it is looking at John Fetterman. He is the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania uh, who won the Democratic primary yesterday in Pennsylvania by a landslide. Um, and the question is, is he really the future of the Democratic Party? And as we all know, um, he is a major supporter of cannabis. Uh, It says, John Fetterman's resounding uh, victory in the Democratic Pennsylvania Senate primary was not surprising, but it is uncharacteristic. Pennsylvania Democrats do not ordinarily veer too far from the center lane, and they are cautious about whom they send forward from the primary elections to take on Republicans in general elections. They are not gamblers, and given the state's perennially up-for-grab status and its unforgiving electoral math, you could argue they shouldn't be. But on Tuesday, Democrats made uh, Mr. Fetterman the state's lieutenant governor, their nominee to compete for the seat being vacated by the retiring Republican Pat Toomey. Uh, They did all this despite Mr. Fetterman's recent health scare when last week he suffered a stroke. Uh, But he said he's on his way to full recovery. Connor Lamb, uh, a Pittsburgh area congressman, would have been a more conventional choice. His House voting record tracks to the center, and he has been compared to the state's three-term Democratic Senator Bob Casey, a moderate and the son of a former Pennsylvania governor. Mr. Fetterman offers something different, a new model for Pennsylvania. It's built on quirky personal and political appeal rather than the cautions of a traditional Democrat in the Keystone State. With over 80% of the votes counted, Mr. Fetterman was more than doubling the total of Mr. Lamb, whose campaign, despite winning many more endorsements from party leaders, never gained momentum. 
For Democrats, the stakes are high. The outcome may well determine the balance of the evenly divided U.S. Senate. For future votes to confirm Supreme Court nominees and much more in our bitterly divided nation. Nearly every story about Mr. Fetterman points out his six foot eight frame, shaved head, tattoos, and preferred attire, work clothes from Carhartt, a brand long favored by construction workers and miners, and more recently by hip hop artists. He sometimes attends public events in baggy gym shorts. It is all part of a style that has won him passionate followers among progressive Democrats. Mr. Fetterman has been a frequent present on MSNBC and is a skilled social media practitioner with over 400,000 Twitter followers. Uh, his dogs also have Twitter accounts with more than 25,000 followers. Uh, it, can be, it seems that he skirts the line between a traditional candidate and an Internet influencer. The Philadelphia Inquirer said Fetterman doesn't have supporters so much as full-on fans. Fans who write songs about him, buy his merch, and know his life story. Mr. Fetterman has served as lieutenant governor since 2019, and before that, for four terms, was the mayor of Braddock, a town east of Pittsburgh with just over 1,700 residents. He vows to conduct a 67-county campaign, which is the whole of Pennsylvania. Uh, Rebecca Katz, a senior political advisor, told me she believes the campaign's mantra of every county, every vote is being received with too much skepticism and says that people haven't seen what kind of map he can run in Pennsylvania. His positions do not differ that much from more traditional Democrats, but some of his central concerns do set him apart. A signature issue that has been the legalization of marijuana, legal weed as he calls it. He has flown a flag displaying cannabis leaves from the official lieutenant governor's office alongside a rainbow-colored LGBTQ banner. The advocacy of legal marijuana may be the rare issue that draws support from unpredictable corners and crosses all kinds of lines, including urban and rural. Uh, but he still has to solve the math of an evenly divided state. A Democrat hoping to win in Pennsylvania has to thread an electoral needer. Mr. Fettelman will face either the celebrity doctor, Mamet Oz, or the financier, David McCormick. Either way, uh, Pennsylvania, and this is coming from me now, Pennsylvania, I think, will see a candidate um, in the U.S. Senate seat uh, next time around that is a fan of cannabis. Do I think Fetterman can pull it off? it is going to be a tough fight for him. While he did win major support in the Democratic uh, primary, he did not do well in Philadelphia. Uh, If he wants to win the whole state, he has to do well in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, and he is not a big fan of black voters. Um, He had an incident in his past involving him holding a gun um, on a suspected, uh, well, the guy was actually a jogger uh, who he suspected of a crime, and it did not turn out to be the case. Uh, and he has not really been able to answer for, answer for that. Um, so I think this will be interesting to see if Fetterman uh, can go the distance. Um, it's going to be tough, especially when Pennsylvania is known for flipping and we're going to dump our Democratic uh, governor this year. So I don't know if they're going to go so far as to have two Democrats sitting in the Senate. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see if uh, weed is what really makes this happen. Uh, Gretchen for State of Canvas News Hour. I was gonna. I was gonna cover this uh, yesterday. Reason and Politico uh, were predicting this because of what we talked about yesterday: the cannabis voting block. It is a real thing. As Politico notes, I'm going to read this. This is a shrewd campaign strategy. Marijuana initiatives tend to drive turnout among younger voters who are typically the hardest to get to show up. Washington State, for example, saw turnout among voters ages 18 to 29 more than double in 2012 when recreational marijuana was on the ballot. So 
Yeah. We will, cannabis- we will see, Susan. It, it, yes, younger voters do help drive this issue, but they also do not turn off turn out in non-presidential years. Um, very, very, very true, Rich. And I was watching uh, I was watching the news last night, watching the primary election in Ohio and Pennsylvania. And in both states, uh, younger Democratic voter turnout was down over 20 percent from the uh, election two years ago. Well, maybe the maybe the fact that a lot of these cannabis candidates are coming to into the fold this time it will give the uh the youngins a little extra to vote if about if so not if only can they turn out but they'll right also now, be turned up if they're down they will be turned now, out and they will turn don't out don't expect them to get 20 percent more later yeah because they ain't worried about later they're worried about right now exactly and if you yeah, give them the weed right now they'll show and up there's t- uh, well, and I, the abortion is going to make people come out too it's going to oh, make yeah. a lot of young people oh, come oh. out Absolutely. Uh, I love how the Republicans are very, very quiet about that issue right now. Well, and if and I'm sure we're all not big fans of Dr. Oz, but if he pulls off his win right now, it's still too close to call. Uh, Dr. Oz, I have spoken to him personally, is a fan of cannabis. So Pennsylvania could help to uh, push legalization forward with a Republican or a Democrat. He's he's also a fan of, of, of that noise that ducks make. He's also he's also a Trump-backed Republican that is backing cannabis. They could have a smoke off. They're both fucking quacks. Is Doctor Oz authentically for cannabis, or is he just doing it because he he's, knows he's authentic. It's popular? He's authentic. He is he's authentic from the medical perspective. But here's the thing: if you're like, I mean, if you're anti-cannabis, you're kind of anti-general public opinion, as we're seeing. So. No matter what your like real personal opinion is, unless your you know voter contingent is really anti-cannabis, it would behoove you to be more pro-cannabis. I think the moral That's, of the story is if if you're pro-cannabis, like make sure you tell your friends friends get out and fucking vote. Yeah, one of the one of the quotes in the article, uh, this woman said, "If they don't support it, meaning cannabis legalization, they're fighting a losing battle." And I think that's just really the attitude in the country. Well, another big thing to also credit at least Fetterman with is in Pennsylvania, the lieutenant governor um, has a lot of power over uh, the prison system. Um, and he has done a lot to reform things and put together pardons, and he has fixed outdated systems and granted clemency in a lot of cases. Uh, so he could be a, a very good thing for legal cannabis and uh, the criminal justice reform side of it. We will be watching, but let's keep smoking the news. Let's do it. Our next correspondence all about getting access to good information and to the people. And with a quicker and smoother delivery than any DoorDash order you've complained about over the last year, he's destined for five-star reviews and greatness. And it's probably because behind the scenes, we all know that he's a weed-smoking superhero. By day, he's a communication strategist and publisher for the American Cannabis Report. Coming to the stage next, Christopher Smith. What you got for us today, my man? Good morning, Rico. Thank you so much. Good morning, Susan and Jason. My story today is from um, NJ.com or NewJersey.com. The father and son team of Donald and Sky Blanks are applying for a dispensary license in Keyport, which is on the northern end of the New Jersey coast. They have plans to operate from a former uh, Wells Fargo bank. Uh, There's a great picture of the father and son in the article all suited up. The son is a spitting image of his dad, and they're standing in the doorway of the bank vault So the blanks in a bank hoping to make some bank. They are operating under Wanda James Simply Pure brand. Simply Pure and Wanda James made history as the first black-owned dispensary in Colorado. 
They're also working with another equity applicant father and son team, Darren Chandler and Darren Jr., who run Premium Genetics based in New Jersey but operating in Colorado. Both fathers come to the background of the market where the cannabis was still illegal. They are now helping their sons and each other on the legalized side of the market. And here's some happy talk for you. The dynamic is an example of one of the core aims of legalization, generational wealth for those impacted by the war on drugs. For the blanks to win a license in Monmouth County, Shore Town will take the state one small step closer to helping fulfill New Jersey's core mission in ensuring racial equity and economic justice. So it's a great feel-good story. The rest of it is an interview with the, with the uh, father and son. Um, it's a great feel-good story, but I worry that it has the potential to give people the wrong idea about the reality of social equity. If the Blanks and the Chandlers are able to get licensed and make a go of it, they will be just two of the too few. Social equity and generational wealth are magic words these days. They have the same feel as the American dream, finger quotes, but that if you get a license, it's your golden ticket and your children's children will be wearing Gucci diapers which might be true if states like New Jersey practiced what they preached on social equity, but the clues to me are hidden in plain sight. That quote that I just read about fulfilling New Jersey's core mission in ensuring racial equity, well, in the article, it's a link to another article in the same publication, and the link, uh, the, the article that's linked to is the, the following headline. Black businesses feel shafted as New Jersey gets set to choose who can grow and sell weed legally. And that article says, um, for all the talk of social equity, the average prospects for black ownership, in the ec- black ownership equity in America was between 1 out of 20 and 50, 1 out of 50 in the cannabis industry, according to statistics released by the cannabis platform Leafly. Another quote is the New Jersey Cannabis Regulatory Commission had touted on October 15th how diverse the businesses being awarded vertically integrated and medical cannabis license are, except most, if not all, of these minority license winners were white women. In the following days, applicants of color would claim they had not received accurate points for being minority applicants in the scoring and award process, and this included Al Harrington, who was born in New Jersey, by the way, and and was rejected by his home state. And by the way, the blanks are opening a dispensary only. And a quote from the article, those licenses with vertical integration and access to making their own supply of cannabis are some of the most economically valuable ways to get into the cannabis industry and create true generational wealth, said Jamil Taylor, who wrote the applications for the Harringtons. Um, There is an imbalance, though. To be clear, white women were not the targets of the war on drugs. So stay tuned in New Jersey, and let's see if the Blanks, the Chandlers, and the Harringtons can get a piece of the pie that's estimated in the billions in just a few years. And I'm done speaking. Well, goddamn. Social equity for everybody, I guess. I I thought we called this socialist equity, Rico. Very few. Call it that. Well, we have to remember that, you know, when you have systemic racism, it's, it's designed to keep groups of people from participating economically and politically. And so it, we, we, we have to keep chasing after this more perfect union. I'm going to relight the room and then uh, we're going to go to another story on this topic. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. 
The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Canada's news hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Canada or its members. The statements made in the State of Canada's news hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice in the State of Canada and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Canada's news hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Canada or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Canada or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. All right. Well, coming up next to the stage, it's a pot-loving PhD and champion of common-sense cannabis policy, a real-life alternative activist remaining optimistic in the midst of cannabis chaos. Coming next to the stage, it's Menika Mahajan. What do you have for us this morning, Menika? Thank you, Jason. Good morning, everyone. So continuing that same kind of thread about social equity programs and helping victims of the war on drugs, I'm bringing you a story today from Oakland, California. My headline reads... Oakland's new push to help victims of the war on drugs. Ballot measure would divert cannabis tax revenue. And it's by Sarah Ravani of the San Francisco Chronicle. So Oakland voters will get a chance this November to decide whether cannabis tax revenue should be dedicated to services for victims of the war on drugs. The city gets about $7 million annually, which is currently deposited into the general fund. And in a new proposal called the Emerald New Deal, or END, tax revenue would be dedicated for services to help impacted communities. Here are a few stats shared on the END page. uh, 12,655 Oaklanders were arrested between 1995 to 2015 for crimes related to cannabis use. 77% were Black and 15% Latinx. Formerly incarcerated individuals comprise a minimum of 25 to 50 percent of the Oakland homeless population, and only 1 to 2 percent of students with incarcerated mothers and only 13 to 25 percent of students with imprisoned fathers graduate from college. So those are some of the stats that are driving this policy proposal. To address these harms to communities, uh, the, the END has a strategic investment plan that would focus on the following categories, reentry support services, mental health, housing access, economic self-sufficiency, community and economic development, and the Cannabis Equity Program, which is for business owners who had been impacted by the war on drugs. And the committee will develop END strate- the END strategic investment plan every four years using research to determine the appropriate investments of funds towards those most impacted by the war on drugs. So there will be a continuous reevaluation. Three council members have co-sponsored this proposal, Lauren Taylor, Treva Reed, and Noel, Noel Gallo, which needs council approval to be placed on the November ballot, November 2022, to be clear. Taylor and Reed are also running for mayor. Taylor said, quote, This is critical because we talk about equity and addressing the vestiges of institutional racism, the war on drugs, but we don't put real dollars behind that. When we talk about reparative investment, having that locked in as something that's a commitment from our city with a dedicated revenue stream is important to make the progress we are trying to make, end quote. The proposal would also create a new nine-person planning and oversight commission appointed by council members and the mayor, and that commission would decide who qualifies for services under the program. At least five of the seats will be held by individuals or family members who've been directly impacted by incarceration associated with the war on drugs. And the other four will go to individuals impacted by incarceration with certain types of professional expertise, owners, employees, and advocates. The proposal is expected to go to council committee on May 24th and will include a financial analysis from the city's finance department. If it makes it through the local council approval process and appears on the November ballot, It will need two-thirds of the vote to pass since the funds will be dedicated or restricted to a specific purpose. 
I'm Menika Mahajan reporting on Oakland for the State of Cannabis NewsHour. I'm wondering how much money the, those commission people are going to make. Um, I don't know that we need to have nine more bureaucrats, but it's it's great that they're giving five of those those positions to equity people. Who's got the uh, there's I- no indication that these are staff positions. Um, and in some other commissions and, and committees, these, uh, you know, they're un, unpaid positions, I believe. Oh, got it. Okay, good. I just go back to, you know, it's Roz here. I just go back to transparency. Um, it, it almost feels like sometimes it's a band-aid, or a band-aid approach um, to how to create more uh, equity and levity when it comes to <coughs> this equity conversation. So long story short, I would just say, you know, be able to watch and follow the the, the, the funds and, and also transparency in this whole initiative. Sorry, guys, I'm in the airport. Sorry about that. I agree with Roz. I think that it's it's so unfortunate and sad, but we see so much of these things just get horribly perverse incentives because, like Rico says, follow that money. Follow the money. I don't know. Oakland's a total shit show. So anything that help goes moves to help the community, I'm in favor for yeah, I think help with housing is a good idea. In some respects, just deciding to designate the funds is uh, it guarantees that it'll be, well, I shouldn't say it guarantees, but it increases the likelihood that the revenue from the cannabis industry will go back towards uh, assisting those communities instead of other city priorities and expenditures. So that's and, and, that, and that is and that is key that it goes back to those communities that have been most harmed. That was the whole purpose of some of the tax revenue, not to make cannabis companies pay more or towards social programs. They're already paying taxes, so some of that revenue should go towards these type of um, repairing and releasing folks from harm. So I agree one hundred percent. So Menica, is it a hundred percent of the tax revenue? In this proposal, yes, it yeah. um, it would be all of the local tax revenue, the local cannabis nice. tax revenue, to be well, clear, because there are other taxes too that they pay locally. It, right? Was there any was there any comment from any of the city council members in Oakland as to, or anyone um, anyone from the department as far as like what they're going to do for a revenue stream if this was to pass? Do you mean uh, to replace the? Yeah, because how, gov- how government works is once they get an allocation of money before they even get the money, they sp- allocate it and spend it. And so the city of Oakland already has allocations for the cannabis tax revenue going to all of these different things. And so if all of a sudden that is short-stopped by this voter initiative, what is the city's plan to keep that type of revenue coming into their coffers? I think I read a stat that this was 1% to 1.5% of the total general fund. So it is a small amount, but I did not see the answer to that really good question, Jason. I wouldn't be surprised if a bunch of city council members and other, uh, you know, the political establishment totally block this initiative and don't allow it to pass. We'll see. We shall see. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we will. Let's keep it moving here. So he's a well-known and revered industry OG a veteran, dope dad, a defender of the culture, never hesitant to speak up for our industry's legacy. Coming to the stage next is the co-founder and CEO of the 2022 Emerald Cup champion brand, Papa and Barkley, here to bless all our ears with a little G-Code gospel, Guy Rocourt. What you got for us today, my man? Thank you, Rico. Good morning. Good morning, Susan. Good morning, Jason. Uh, today, my article is coming out of Marijuana Moment. 
and it's entitled Marijuana Legalization Linked to Decreased Use of Alcohol, Nicotine, and Opioids, New Study Finds. This article actually mentions several studies, although they're not cited, and I actually would be interested to find them because there are a lot of good studies out there. So marijuana legalization is associated with the decreased use of alcohol, nicotine, non-prescription opioids among young, young adults, according to new study. Researchers at the University of Washington analyzed data on the substance use trends from 2014 to 2019, finding people aged 21 to 25 were less likely to consume the arguably more dangerous drugs post-legalization in the state. The study published in the Journal of Adolescent Health last week looked at six annual waves of cross-sectional survey data analyzing data from 12,694 adults. Contrary to the concerns about spillover effects, implementation of legalized non-medical cannabis coincides with a decrease in alcohol and cigarette use and pain reliever misuse, the, sub the study abstract said. Real-world data from legalization states disputes longstanding claims that cannabis is a sort of gateway drug. Normal director... Deputy Director Paul Amentado said in a blog post, in fact, in many instances, cannabis regulation is associated with the decreased use of other substances, including prescription medication. The point To that point, another study concluded that marijuana legalization is associated with the decreased use of prescription drugs for the treatment of conditions such as anxiety, sleep, pain, and seizures. Last year, a study found that medical marijuana is associated with significant reduction in dependence in opioids and other prescription drugs, as well as an increased quality of life. A meta-study that was published in 2020 also signaled that marijuana shows promise as a treatment, treatment, for, treatment option for chronic pain and could serve as an alternative to opioid-based painkillers. Researchers released a study that year that found that cannabis can mitigate the symptoms of opioid withdrawal. In 2019, research researchers determined that states with legal marijuana cases ex experienced a decrease in opioid prescriptions. A separate study released the previous month showed that daily marijuana consumption is associated with the reduced opioid consumption among chronic pain patients. So again, lots of different studies cited here. They're not footnoted, but I think it, this is the point that we all know, those of us who are in the industry, cannabis is not the, can the gateway drug. And in fact, it's the one to get us off some of the toxic things that have been put out by pharma. I like to call out to an improved quality of life. So very happy to be uh, reporting this very positive uh, article. Um, I think it's something we all knew. No, and I hope that uh, those who are looking to legalize and those who are legalizing in their states realize that let's put cannabis first and reduce the opioid problem, re reduce the alcoholism rate. Let's finally let this plant share its love and magic with everybody. This is Guy Rocourt reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I love these stories, Guy, but I do think that cannabis is a gateway drug. It's only a gateway to the refrigerator. <laughs> Still true. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, cannabis has over 150 cannabinoids, CBD being one of them. And we know so much more about CBD than the other ones. And we know that CBD does decrease craving and the anxiety associated with relapse and has been shown to decrease alcohol, nicotine and cocaine use. So it's just a matter of time before we find out that other cannabinoids probably can help with the same thing. So if you're taking the whole plant, you're, you're bound to be helped. How did the pharmaceutical industry get people to trust pills so much? I mean, it, it, you, you have, they have to say all of the side effects, and there are a lot of side effects, yet everybody seems to think, well, it's a pill. It's, 
It's safe. It's because they're doctors prescribe it and give it Marketing. to them. People are trained to trust their doctors. Doctors, do- doctors are the original influencers. You got the social media influencers today. Doctors are the original influencers. Yeah, and yep. I, go ahead, Guy. No, I was going to say, I think that's accurate. I think doctors, we have been programmed to think that they are knowledgeable, learned people that are also altruistic or have our health in mind due to the Hippocratic Oath. I think that, unfortunately, we have to realize that capitalism tends to corrupt that, and plant medicine should always be the first thing, and doctors need to start teaching that in school. And, and Guy, one, one quick thing. Congratulations on your two Emerald Cup awards at the recent Emerald Thank Cup. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate you. Yeah. Congratulations, Guy, and I'm going to push back. Most doctors mean well and want the best for their patients. Very few of them are um, out just for the money. That's that's really not true. They were getting kickbacks. They were getting kickbacks. They were getting vacations. They were getting... That's the minority, Susan. I'm telling you, that's the minority. There's just a very small percentage of doctors that... Are rolling big with pharmaceutical companies. That's not the average. Doctor. Well, it's like the influencers. I don't, I, I don't buy that. The influencers are being used by pharma. Yes, my father's a doctor. He always talked to me about the Hippocratic Oath and said, you know, the problem is that there's not data. The problem is we're looking at data from pharmaceutical companies that's been altered and they're just telling us these things. They bury other things. I mean, that's the problem. We're looking at data, but it's the wrong data. It's altered data. Look who paid for it. Yeah, I think it also comes down to it also comes down to SOPs. You know, insurance companies demand that how certain medical procedures and certain treatments are done away. And yeah, before they would release cannabis or have a doctor prescribe cannabis, it has to go through certain hoops. But what's insurable? And we know how insu- where you know insurance companies and pharma companies have gained the system where if you need if you need your own personal medical insurance or the doctor's insurance so that he doesn't have uh, liability coverage, all those things ladder up to you need to do things the way we say it. Period. The end. I, I've been overdosed by doctors, and so I just want to push back on that trustworthy comment about doctors because I do not trust doctors at all whatsoever. They're all paid off by the pharmaceutical industry, in my opinion, and because they all get kickbacks from all the different pharmaceutical drugs. Um, my, my doctor, when I, when, um, when, when I was overdosed on pharmaceuticals from a doctor and they, they told me that I, that I was overdosed and I, that's why I was experiencing some of the side effects I was experiment or ex- experiencing, and I asked him, I said, how does that happen? And he just said, oh, well, it's different for everybody. We just have to try to find, to find the right levels for you. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like, I'm some fucking guinea pig for you guys' bullshit fucking experiments. And I fucking totally ultimately quit that shit cold turkey. Jason, that's how medicine is, though. They, they try that. And that's literally what they do. Everybody is different. They react differently to it, just like we teach people with cannabis. So I'd hope that your doctor wasn't doing that intentionally. And my, I can my doctor was say fucking that I think, trash. OK, this guy was okay, a piece but then he of shit. Also, he also has a I think that's from the pharma company, right? Too. I think that's the thing that they don't cop to, Liz. It's like we need a little bit more honesty. And we get this sense that doctors are bulletproof and pharma's bulletproof. And it's like, yeah, take two pills, come back two weeks later, I'll adjust the dose. Well, that inconsistency and inconsistency and side effects need to be noted because often when plant medicine is put on the table, doctors will say, well, plant medicine is not accurate, it's not consistent, it's not recreatable, but what it doesn't have is toxic side effects, right? So I find both on equal footing, but often our learned partners are quick to disparage plant-based medicine due to this perceived lack of consistency. 
I think it's that's also just based what, on what, ignorance. That's just based on ignorance, Guy. That's just I, based I, I on ignorance. I think there's a big, a, big, a big point, too, that I think that needs to be expressed in, in regards with this discussion is that all pharmaceutical drugs, every single one of them, um, only actually works for 10 percent of the population that the drug is used to treat. Well, placebo effect is enormous. We know that even with cannabis. And, and if you keep playing commercials again and again and again, you're brainwashing people. Let's give Terry Sims a, a, up from the audience a chance to weigh in, and then we need to move on. Oh, hey. Terry. Thanks. Uh, I was just thinking, um, do you guys think it's coincidence that uh, around the time that Rockefeller introduced the Pharmaceutical Association, that was around the same time that we criminalized uh, cannabis. So I don't think it's an accident. It's a billion, trillion dollar industry we're talking. So, yeah. Good point. Thank you so much. Let's keep smoking the news. Billion. Follow, follow the money, Rico. Just follow the money. But coming up next to the stage, she's an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and that's right, psychedelics. Coming next to the stage is the founder of the cannabis blog and podcast, Shall We Toke? It's Shalina Panu. Thanks so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is WeHo pushes psilocybin to be treated as low priority for law enforcement. According to WeHoville, council member John Erickson of West Hollywood had an agenda set for this past Monday sitting council meeting, which would designate prosecutions of psilocybin and any arrests, citations, investigations, and property seizures a low priority for West Hollywood's law enforcement agencies. There hasn't been any update online about how the meeting went, but this move doesn't seem that far away. According to the staff report, they stated modern research has reinstated an interest in the use of psychedelics, including psilocybin, as an effective treatment for a broad range of health issues. Psilocybin has the potential to treat a range of psychiatric and behavioral disorders, including depression, OCD, smoking cessation, and other addictions, cocaine addiction, and cancer-related or other end-of-life psychological distress. California has attempted to take measures of legalizing psilocybin this past year, yet it was unable to get enough votes to be placed on the 2022 ballot. However, cities like WeHo are known to be ahead of their time. In the 1990s, WeHo City Council eased their enforcement on cannabis. Years later, they are currently establishing in WeHo what is known as Emerald Village to be the capital of cannabis culture, highlighting everything from entertainment, wellness, nightlife, culinary, art, and more. Currently, decriminalization and legalization efforts of psilocybin have been the focus right now for many cities and states due to their promising medical benefits. If history has shown us anything, it's only a matter of time before psilocybin takes over WeHo. What are your thoughts on the future of psilocybin in WeHo? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I love this story, Shalina. Thank you. Thank you so much for covering this. I had a, a really long conversation with uh, Council Member Erickson uh, prior to him uh, winning election and becoming a council member. And this is one of the things that we talked about during this discussion. I had a second follow-up conversation with him after he was elected, reiterating uh, exactly this topic as well as a few others. And so bravo, John Erickson. Thank you so much for being a leader, being courageous, and doing the right thing. Yeah, I second that. I mean, this is the beginning. Uh, you know, there's so much in the psilocybin movement that mirrors uh, cannabis, the lack of data, the fear, but also the general collective acceptance and people bonding together and using their voice to say, this works for me. We need access for this. We're n and also, I think just the non-toxic, non-criminal behavior inciting uh aspects of psilocybin. Again, remember with cannabis, psilocybin and most plant-based medicines, people are not 
boisterous, violent, or outwardly assholes, unlike some other legal substances. Just putting it out there. Indeed. Let's keep it moving. Cause we got we, we got like two more stories. So so known for bringing the data, not the drama, coming out of the Central Valley. It's Santa Barbara's greatest data analyzer, processor, and influencer in the game, Liz Rogan. What you got for us? Hey, thank you, Rico, and happy hump day, everyone. My story comes from KRCR out of um, Dinsmore, California. And the headline reads, Cannabis Plants Destroyed from Facebook Marketplace Deal. So, hate to say it, but Meta's a trap, in my opinion. So, a licensed cultivator with a nursery license sold clones to an undercover agent via Facebook Marketplace. Uh, there had been reports that uh, on to that people were selling clones on Marketplace, so the marijuana enforcement team put a team together and they basically caught this guy who was selling clones and they, you know, they had been reporting them as lost and they were selling over 1500 clones. This agreement was on May 9th to sell them to um, undercover deputies without a license. So, you know, uh, so basically they went undercover, they met the seller, then they served a search warrant, and um, basically they found to be out of compliance and cited illegal clone sales. And so they destroyed thousands of plants. Um, and so about 22,000 cannabis plants tied to the nursery and 15 pounds of untagged packaged cannabis bud were seized and destroyed. But they were in compliance with their full-term cultivation license, so they didn't take any of those plants, and the person was not arrested. And it's basically the Humboldt County District Attorney's Office is reviewing this. So it's, you know, obviously something we know that happens a lot in the industry. There's so many challenges with these incredibly high barriers to entry, specifically taxes and other things. And a lot of people are just trying to survive, but it's unfortunate that they got caught this way and we really need to try to do it the right way to thrive. So I don't know. I say meta is a trap and you can't grow cannabis uh, on the internet, especially without electricity. So this is Liz Rogan reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour coming from like the nature angle. Love to hear what you guys have to say about this. Yeah, Jason, what, Jason and Guy, how, how do you feel about this? This guy He's, let his license lapse, or did he have one? Yeah, he, he had a license. They were selling clones. I don't think he's going to get prosecuted. I mean, it's in it's in Humboldt County or Trinity County. I mean, realistically, you're not going to get a jury or your peers to convict you on any of that shit. So this is this is just a wash. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of like non-news. It's like you know, yeah, he he let his license lapse. That's bad. He should probably get you know a ticket or something. But to make a big deal of it, like it's he's a nefarious criminal, is ridiculous. Uh, you know, it's kind of silly as a business operator to let your license lapse. Just like it would be silly to let your license lapse when you're driving. But it happens. But it's not like some huge offense that should be in the paper. Wait to clarify, guys. I agree with you, Gee. But uh, to clarify, he did not let his license lapse. He had one regular cultivation license and one nursery license and he was caught selling clones out of the nursery license basically taking off the metric tags so it was just you know diversion basically and so it's not a huge deal it's i think the bigger thing is like watch out on facebook marketplace and these data things because data's watching Liz, um, I was looking at this story and thinking about reporting on it and just out of curiosity i just started searching facebook marketplace and there are lots of people selling clones throughout the state. But I also, I, I wondered for the other correspondents, doesn't um, 
doesn't the discovery of this type of activity threaten the two light? I believe this um, this farm has a, a cultivation license and a nursery license. So wouldn't the discovery of these activities uh, create some threats for those those licenses themselves? If the DCC was going to do something, wouldn't they have already done it? I mean, instead they're turning it over to law enforcement to issue out the punishment. It seems like yeah, to me, and that's that's the problem, Jason. That's the fuck. That's the problem. Excuse my language. It's like I I totally hear you. Like if he had a license violation, and the DCC wanted to suspend his other license and put him out of business. That's appropriate. Calling jackbooted thugs who are armed and might for what? What? There's no criminal offense here. There's tons of liquor operators, tons of bar operators that are constantly in violation. They get fines. They don't have the police show up with assault rifles. This is ridiculous. Yeah, and they don't have the police come with assault rifles and, like, destroy all their bottles of beer and other things in there. What Guy said. And then to throw one more monkey wrench in there is, like, really, they said that if it's under 0.3% THC, that it's legal. So, hey, dude, that's well, most, almost then, all then, then, then tech, that. Well, then, then, then the DCC really needs to look at their look at their things because technically all clones and all seedlings will be considered hemp because they're under that 0.3 THC percentage. And all seeds. Yep. I said seeds. Yeah, seedlings. Huge discrepancy there. So technically, since we're yeah. not allowed to cultivate hemp and being licensed by the DCC, technically we are cultivating hemp until we're at the flowering process. So they destroyed 22,000 plants that should not have been destroyed? Is that the takeaway? Yeah, they shouldn't have destroyed these because technically those were hemp plants and they shouldn't have been able to destroy them under, under federal law. Yeah, legally. That's personal property. Facebook Marketplace wouldn't let me sell my book. That's probably because it was your book, Susan. No. They they actually blocked our advertising account for selling hemp hoodies that you cannot smoke. That's because they burn, bro. When you did the search, Menica, when you did your your research, what, what kind of items did you find? I just searched clone. And I was trying to actually, you know, search for this ad that the uh, authorities found, which is probably taken down by now. So I was kind of searching within that area, and I just searched the word clone in Facebook Marketplace, and I got a bunch of stuff in Sacramento and other places. So it's it's just plants. I made these really cute. I made these really cute necklaces that are like joint holders, and I I couldn't sell them on Etsy or Facebook Marketplace not, because I refused to say that they were cigarette holders. Not, not to mention, too, the federal government recently ruled and say that all seed sales are legal. Um, do, yeah. And so, since, since like the, these cuttings fall under that same jurisdiction of that they're federally legal to sell, so that's why they're mm-hmm. on the metaverse. Grandma's garden is going to start selling seeds. What we've reached the top, we've we've reached the top of the hour. Yes, they're hemp seeds that can grow cannabis. That was a great show. We've reached the top of the hour. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a review. Come on, people. Subscribe to our podcast. We need the audience. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that come through the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. Thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. You take us deeper into the story, add color, and sometimes provide amazing sound bites. Thanks for joining us. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. 
Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. <laughs> so that one. Somebody take this game.